Well, welcome back again to our youth. This is uh, off the cuff, but if you're an adult, you're like, man, I wish I just could get away like that. Well, there's a ladies' brunch coming up, I think, in a little over a month. Sorry. I don't know the date to circle on your calendar. There's a men's retreat coming in October. So just know if that make, gives you like an itch, like, I just want to get away, you know, do something like that. They're, they're coming for the men and the women. But it's good to have our youth back um, as well. Uh, I have this shirt on me. It says Team Denise on the front. Come on, not only are we trying to support our family prayerfully, but practically this is one way. Maria Albrecht has been here for a couple of weeks selling these. I think they're $15 each. I got one, gave it to my wife. I'm probably never going to see it again, so I probably have to get another one. But uh, Marina and Dave, could you raise your hand? Because Mar Maria Albrecht's not here, so if you're looking for one, you want to get one, they have those. We're just trying to practically support them in this season. I'm going to lay that right there, but... This season for us as a church, we've been in a series called Your Cell, Your Soul, Eternal Wisdom for the Smartphone Age. And, and the timing of the series, it kind of coincides with 10 years ago, 2007, they released the iPhone for the first time. And in the 10 years since 2007, 1 billion iPhones have been sold. Not just smartphones, 1 billion iPhones specifically have been sold since 2007. There are now more smart devices than there are flesh and blood human beings on the planet, uh, which is remarkable. Screens, technology, it's everywhere. And in May 3rd of 2016, the editors of Time Magazine, they named the iPhone the single most influential gadget of all time, saying that it fundamentally changed our relationship to computing and information, a change likely to have repercussions for decades to come. So the question we've been tackling this summer is, okay, what are the repercussions? If our screens, our technology are everywhere, what's the proper place for all of it? Especially in lives, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you want to keep him in his proper place, at the center of our focus and at the center of our hearts. So we've been tackling these questions because we've all benefited from smartphones in a hundred different ways, and we probably all abused our smartphones hundreds of times. But the problematic habits and the problems that arise, they're not new problems. Many of them are timeless ones that, that man has grappled with since the beginning of time. Last week we talked about words, right? the impact of our words, even in digital form. We've had problems with words as man since we could first talk, right? I know for me, right, Raj, he's not even talking yet, and when he opens his mouth, sometimes, hey, boy, make eye contact like Steph was talking about, right? <laughs> and then the week before was situational awareness. Again, ancient, timeless problems, but we have an ancient timeless book, the word of God that speaks to every issue and shows its relevance even in this age. And all these technological innovations, all these technological inventions, they're really theological invitations to look at, okay, what do I believe and how do I walk that out in today's context and in this era? But you know, before smartphones, before the ability to text, before the ability to email, before really phones in any form, we had plain old mail, snail mail. That's what we called it in college. Handwritten notes, written, put in an envelope with a stamp. And it takes days to go places, right? We're so used to sending our messages instantly. Pastor Fred and I live, or excuse me, work adjacent to each other. Literally, we're on the other side of a wall. When I play music, I know he can hear it. When he plays music, he knows I can hear it. And he sent me an email with an attachment on Thursday. And it had been like 10 minutes. And I'm already like, where's this thing? Like, I didn't want to knock on his door, but it got to be an hour to where you're just like, 
something is wrong because we're so used to you send an email, you're refreshing it over here, and it's, it's almost like it should be there instantaneously. But snail mail, the practice of handwritten mail sent to another location. How many of you have written a handwritten letter and mailed it over the past, say, month? Respect. Few hands. It's a lost art. But you know, most of the New Testament was written, transcribed as letters, what we call epistles, uh, letters to fledgling churches, letters to individual believers. And this at the time was the closest thing to a text or an email, the ability to speak to somebody without being face-to-face and in-person, flesh and blood. And you see, John wrote three epistles near the end of our Bibles. They're very small. They're tucked away towards the end of the book. But I, I love how he finishes two of the books. In 2 John and 3 John, his closings are, are very similar. But I want to read from 2 John chapter 1, verse 12, where he says this. He says, I have much more to say to you, but I don't want to do it with paper and ink. For I hope to visit you soon and talk with you face to face. Then our joy will be complete. What's he saying? He's saying, I'd, I'd rather not lean on the technology of his day, the tool of his day, ink and papyrus, pen and paper. He's saying, I'd rather come to be with you face to face, heart to heart, flesh and blood, not pen and paper. And again, to us with all our new technology, letters, they, they seem archaic, they seem like a lost art, but this was for them the tool they used to communicate from a distance. So I saw the first 15 minutes of Toy Story recently. Chalk that up as things that happen when you're fathering a two-year-old. But I'm sure many of us have seen the original Toy Story. And at the very beginning of Toy Story, uh, Andy's having a birthday. The owner of all these toys is having a birthday. And they're all freaking out that he's going to get a a nicer toy, a a toy with maybe better technology, a toy that's maybe a little more advanced, and that he'll fall in love with that toy and replace them or get rid of them in a yard sale, right? But I don't think for most of us, Our problem is, will technology hurt our relationship with our old toys? (laughs) I think the question we have to ask is, does our relationship to technology hurt our flesh and blood relationships? As automation replaces human interaction, does interactivity, does that begin to replace intimacy? You know, the song at the beginning of Toy Story, You've Got a Friend in Me, it's a classic song. It's a great song. And the word friend in 1995 when that movie came out, Some of you feel old now. (laughs) That word friend was a little simpler. Nine years later in 2004, Facebook launched. And that's what introduced this idea of Facebook friends, where you're you're connected to people, hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people, and they're your quote, unquote friends. You know, it was just a couple months ago. I don't know if it was the spring or summer when Facebook for the first time eclipsed 2 billion users. That's a lot of people on Facebook. And around the same time, the founder, CEO of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, said he wants Facebook to be a place where people can come together for real community. And it was interesting, the example that he cited in this statement. He said he wanted it to be like the church, genuine community. And it's interesting because he actually met with a lot of prominent, influential pastors, and he said that the meeting was enlightening. And that his goal for Facebook was to be a place where people could, in a community, do good together. And... That's admirable, right? It's a good goal to have. But when we look at, at, at Facebook, we see that its version of community currently is lacking. 
the average Facebook user in America has approximately 350 Facebook friends, somewhere in there. They did a survey of, of, of thousands of these Facebook users, and a majority confessed that in day-to-day -day life they have two close friends that they would consider they're doing life with, that you know they're uh, close and transparent with. True friends, too. 25% of the people surveyed said they had zero close friends, genuine friends. Now, this isn't to diss Facebook by any means, but it does display the tendencies of our hearts in this age. Because we would say, I believe, that we long for spaces where we can know people and we can be known. That we long for spaces where we can love and be loved. At least that's what we say, and we, we talk a good game, but... If you've been alive in relationship for any amount of time, you know friendship takes work. As the poet Propaganda puts it, to love is hard living. To love hard is hard living. More often, it's so easy to, to, to put up a facade, put up a front, put up a filter, and embrace the easier route of just seeking admiration and approval. We want to be connected, and we do it through sites like Facebook, but we end up lonely. We want to be known and to share our lives online, but we end up alone. And again, the, the reason is because true friendship takes work. True friendship is hard. Love takes work. Love is risky. Love takes sacrifice. Love means that you're opening yourself up to somebody. And there's a risk that that person, because you've opened up yourself, could hurt you. So we, we want to escape the risk. We want to escape the awkward, sometimes uh, raw, but honest human interaction. What's ironic is we de desire to be alone in public, but to never be alone in seclusion. And our, our smartphones help us in that. We end up, though, missing out in both genuine companionship and the value, the value of solitude. You know, next week we're going to talk about the power of just hitting pause, the power of powering down and, and resting and, and embracing silence. But this week I just want to talk about this idea of, of honest authenticity and relationship in what you could call a selfie culture. This Sherry Turkle, she's an author. She wrote multiple books that I'm going to pull from tonight. She wrote a book called Alone Together where she said, digital connections and the sociable robot may offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. Our networked life allows us to hide from each other even as we are tethered to each other. We'd rather text than talk. Random fact, texts, texts, I can say it, texts, texts are now more frequent than phone calls in the U.S. Somewhere along the way, we're losing our ability to connect face-to-face -face and even, even voice-to-voice. -voice. You know, when I'm going into a, a big meeting or I've got a, a, a significant phone call, especially if I know it's going to be long, but there's questions I, want, I know I want to ask. There's things that I, I know I want to confirm. Sometimes I'll write down those questions. Sometimes I'll, I'll put down my thoughts before going into, especially a meeting I've got scheduled, right? I don't want to waste somebody's time just come in and start winging it. Does anybody else do this for conversations, for phone calls, where you might put down the questions you know you want to ask, the things? Anybody? Show of hands. Or am I crazy? All right, good to know. Good to know. In the book, Struggles, we gave some of these away early in the series by Craig Rochelle. He was surveying a room of, of teenagers, just talking to them about social media, talking to them about their devices. And uh, one girl was like, when I call to order a pizza, 
I get so nervous that I'll, I'll script out what I, what I know I want to say, and I'll write out things that he might say, and, and she would script that conversation, and, and Craig Rochelle, was kind of surprised, so we asked the question, does anybody else do this, and hands shot up all around the room, because we've learned, we've learned to write our thoughts in text and comments, and that enables us to present ourselves edited and polished. That's why, again, texts are now preferred over phone calls, although I don't know why the word texts is so hard to say on a microphone. <laughs> but in real-time conversation, that's why people hate public speaking, right? Some people hate conversation because there's the risk that you can stutter. There's a, a risk that you can say something stupid you didn't even mean to say. There's a risk that you could uh, want to put your proverbial foot in your mouth, right? We like to choose control over risk, so we choose edited over authentic. And we'd rather message or text than talk face-to-face or voice-to-voice. You know, Sherry Turkle, this author, she also wrote a book called Reclaiming Conversation about our face-to-face conversations. And what she found was was interesting to me. What she found was that uh, after much study that real, heartfelt, authentic exchange usually doesn't happen until about seven minutes into a conversation. Basically, real Genuine heart-to-heart conversation takes seven minutes to ever begin. And up to that point, we fill conversation with minimal uh, just observations, maybe reports about our day, predictable chit-chat. Did you see the game on Sunday? But about seven minutes in, on average, somebody might pose a question, make an observation, uh, give an account of an emotion. And she says that with our devices, what happens is, is when our device interrupts conversation or, or right, we get a text, we get a phone call and we check that, it doesn't just push back the deeper conversation. It eliminates it altogether and the conversation stays shallow as each side makes room for the other to opt out and, and tend to their device. This is what she found in her studies. And if we never eclipse that seven-minute mark, then we never truly connect heart-to-heart. So the question all of this arises is if you take away connecting face-to-face and voice-to-voice, it's just for emphasis for the question we're asking tonight. If we take away, if you were drowning out, you're back, right? If we take away connecting face-to-face and voice-to-voice in our culture, the question arises, can you really connect heart-to-heart? Can you experience authentic connection? And again, the, the letters of John, it shows us this isn't a new problem. He says, I have, and when he swapped mics, (laughs) says, I have much more to say to you, but I don't want to do it with paper and ink, for I hope to visit you soon and talk with you face to face. Then our joy will be complete. I'm good if you're good. Last week's problem, we talked about words, right? Anonymous anger. We live? All right, we're good. But again, last week we talked about words. That's so much clearer. That sounds so good. (laughs) And the problem was anonymous anger. This this thing that researchers had found that online, when when it's screen to screen instead of face to face, you will say things that you would never say if you were standing in front of a flesh and blood person instead of an avatar. Because you forget that you're dealing with flesh and blood. The, The fruit of forgetting that is this idea of anonymous anger. But the fruit of of coming together, according to John and his epistle, is joy. He says, then our joy 
will be complete. And maybe you're thinking, a lot of my interaction day to day with other people is not what I would define as joyful. Sometimes it's weird. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes there's friction involved. But that's the thing. You know, you hold your, your phone in your hand. The screens on our phone are smooth unless you dropped it. And it's cutting your finger every time you swipe on it. Sorry, there's no help in that. But most of our phones are smooth. They're, they're frictionless. But face-to-face conversations typically aren't. Heart-to-heart relationships aren't. And like a sculpture or, or like art in that form, transformation, it takes friction. Transformation takes that friction. It's kind of friction that we can't find in our phones and technology. Proverbs says, iron sharpens iron. It takes that kind of impact that, again, we can't find simply through networks. But, you know, on our smooth screens, we like to look smooth. Right? The, the term selfies is, is like an official part of most dictionaries at this point. And in 2015, it was found that women, 16 to 25, spend approximately five hours a week taking selfies. The breakdown is three selfies a day, each taking approximately 16 minutes. Because there's things to take into account. Makeup, angle, lighting, filter, it all adds up approximately 16 minutes, three times a day throughout the week. And maybe you're saying, well, I don't consider any of that. Maybe you're saying it's not that frequent for you, but man, I know Steph and I, when we go out on a date night, she wants to capture a picture. So we take one picture and then we put our phone away and post it later. No, we take like 45 pictures, right? And then she's got to look at each one and, and pick the one with the best lighting, with the best angle. Sometimes after 45, she's like, you know what, we need to redo. So, so that's the filter, that's the process. She's out there, she can't hear me, we're good. And she's out there with Raj, poor Raj. Like when we take pictures, we'll take 45, we'll be like, he's got so much more melanin than us. And if there's a flash, he disappears. You have to adjust the brightness every time, just because he's cuter. We can fade out, but we want to highlight him, right? All of this work to post a picture, and it's the digital expression of, again, a, a problem and a question that man has forever struggled with. What would they think if they saw the real me? You know, from the moment man fell in the garden, he hid. What would God think in this moment if he saw the real me? What I just did is God was looking for Adam. He's hiding behind fig leaves. And in a way, filters have become this fig leaf fig that we hide behind when we don't want people to see what we're maybe ashamed of. And maybe it's not literal filters again, but everything we put out there Right? We've, we've filtered in our head. Whatever we say, maybe it's not even pictures. We've filtered so it makes us look good. It's the other concept of, of, of trophy photos. It's the idea like, like when you're at an event and you want to take a picture to encapsulate the moment that looks awesome. When, when Steph was at VCU this week, she had four different appointments. For one of those appointments, I took Raj to the zoo. And there was a moment where Steph requested a picture because she was just down. She was at all these appointments. She's like, I need to see you and Raj. So I didn't take one. I took four, right? And then I picked the best of the four. And see, the thing is, when Raj is upset and yelling, he opens his mouth wide and he raises his eyebrows. And when you post the picture online, it looks like he's full of joy. (laughs) What people don't know is usually he's whining, especially if he's like this. Now you know, like when Steph posts one and he's like, he's actually really upset when you're like, oh, man, he's so happy. Yeah, but we don't. that's That's a trophy photo. You throw it out there, you look good. And we remember that when we post our pictures, but what about when we're looking at our feed of of other folks? Do we remember that, hey, they're posting their highlights? You know, Stephen Furtick has a great quote. He's a preacher. He said, stop comparing your behind the scenes to someone else's highlight reel. 
You know, we see the highlights. We see the, 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 the best picture they got from that event. And, they th- and you think, man, my kid isn't that happy. Well, man, Raj is, is upset. <laughs> it's the comparison trap. When you compare, you either feed the beast of pride or the monster of insecurity. One or the other. You compare, it's doing one or the other. There's never just, oh, I, I compare myself to that person and I'm good. No, if you compare yourself genuinely, you're either going to feed your pride or you're going to feed your insecurity. And in a similar fashion, craving human approval and affirmation and having a lust for likes, it's a no-win proposition. Either you get it and you want more and you can't get enough or you don't receive it and you're miserable. But again, in our culture, we so often crop, filter, and forfeit authenticity. But if we don't deal heart-to-heart in community with other people, get authentic with them, then often we end up sacrificing improvement for man's approval, we end up sacrificing transformation for affirmation. And what's missing in all of this? What's the ingredient that's missing? Simple honesty. Now, I'm not saying that we're lying. I'm not saying that we're breaking the ninth commandment, thou shalt not lie, because you put a Snapchat filter on where you look like a dog. Nobody thinks you're a dog, right? You're good. But what's missing is authenticity. Because deep down in our hearts, when we get spiritual with it, a lot of us get caught up in this idea that God is looking for perfect people. But God is simply looking for honest people. He's not looking for perfect people. He's looking for honest people. Again, in our selfie culture, we show pictures without the blemishes. We choose the best one. We can't do that with God. We wouldn't want to, and we can't. He already knows. He sees the unfiltered version, and he wants honesty. It's in 1 John 1.8 where he says, If we claim to have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves. And God is no fool. But that's the the trap that the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, got caught up in. Jesus is like, man, you clean the outside of the bowl, the dish, in an analogy, to keep up good appearance. But the inside is filthy. But you know what? That's the beauty of the cross. That we can be honest and raw and unfiltered before God when we come to him. Because of the grace that's available through the blood of Jesus Christ. We've said it before here that it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way, right? Grace comes and chases us down where we are, but then grace begins to do the work of transformation. You know, conversion, repentance in the Christian faith, it requires that we get honest with God. It's the the bad news that comes before the good news, that we can say before God, I am broken. We have to get honest before God before we can convert and repent, but then transformation, sanctification, Growth as a believer, that takes that we get honest with people. We get honest with the family of faith, stepping into authentic relationship. You know, the chorus of our culture is so often, man, I'll follow Christ. You know, I want relationship with him. I want to love God, follow Jesus, but don't bother me with that organized religion stuff. Don't bother me with with actually going to church. It's just a result of this disembodied lifestyle and culture in the digital age, but the Christian life is that of a body. You know, there's the, the famous analogy that Paul gives us, but it's also, it's flesh and blood. It's, it's people coming together to worship God. And God wants to redeem authentic, honest, heartfelt connection. First with him, right, vertically reconciled, but then with his church, reconciled with those around us. And if we're going to do that, and if we're going to Be transformed in that way. It's going to take picking up two things that our culture has fumbled. And the first is this. we got to remember to be present. Be present. You know, FaceTime 
is awesome because FaceTime enables us to connect from a distance. Just two days ago, I FaceTimed with Pops, right? Raj's granddad. It's awesome. You see the commercials where, like, the guy's overseas and he's FaceTiming his wife who just had their baby, seen it for the first time. You're watching these FaceTime commercials and you're, like, choking up because it's powerful that you can connect with people from a distance. But simultaneously, it's an enabler of distance. But we see in the Bible again and again, it encourages us to come together. Like Hebrews 10, 25, where it says, let us not neglect our meeting together. Again, the Bible makes it clear that we need to prioritize coming together as flesh and blood. Why? Well, because it imitates God in two different ways. First, as the Trinity, three persons in one through all eternity. But secondly, when God came, there was the incarnation. He took on flesh and blood to be with us. The very name Emmanuel means God with us, God present with us. He didn't send a text message. He didn't, he didn't try to FaceTime. No, he came, put on flesh and blood so that he could be present, so that he could be with us. And there's something powerful about that. And if we find it too messy or too risky or too painful or too, too much friction to step into and engage with flesh and blood people around us, what does that say about us as followers of Christ? Where Jesus stepped from the throne room of heaven to save messy people. If we're not willing to engage with people we might deem messy, then, man, what, what is our ministry as a church? That's why we're here, to pull up along people and be present in whatever season they're in. Mountaintop, valley, let's find ways to be present. And, you know, Jesus ascended right, after his death, there was the ascension, but he says in Matthew 18, 20, where two or more are gathered as my followers, I am there among them. Now, the theologian David Cupp says that the presence of Jesus within the gathering of his disciples is the social and religious experience of his gathered people being filled with divine authority, focus, and coherence for both the ordinary and extraordinary events in the life of their community. It's just another reason that the enemy loves for us to live isolated. You know, as we talk about how our, our technology has created new ways to live, quote-unquote, connected yet alone, stripping us of community, it strips us of the promise, it strips us of the, the presence of Jesus that's promised here in that verse. Not to mention the addictions, the sin, and the brokenness that is not only caused, but is fed by being alone and loneliness. The, the late Dutch psychiatrist J.H. Vandenberg says that loneliness is the nucleus of psychiatry. If loneliness didn't exist, we could reasonably assume that psychiatric illnesses would not occur either. It's a pretty powerful statement, if true. Theologian Peter Leithart said, humans connect to other humans at so basic a level that when we disconnect, our souls shatter into a thousand little pieces. But you might read that quote and say, we're more connected than ever before. It's almost like we're hyper-connected. We're quite connected through all these different avenues that technology gives us. But you could say that we're also displaced. We're less and less present. You know, we can connect with anyone at any time. And like we talked a couple weekends ago with situational awareness, it's because of that that we begin to forget about the flesh and blood that's around us daily. May we fight every day as fathers, husbands, coworkers, neighbors, to up the amount of time we spend looking at somebody in the eyes, with somebody, having face-to-face, heart-to-heart interaction, because that's how God uses us so often. But not only 
do we need to be present? We need to be present, but it also needs to be permanent. We need to be rooted. Because, again, this presence, it needs permanence. We need to put down roots because we need each other. The church is an interdependent group of believers whose need for each other is often greater than we realize. And we'll speak on interdependence more in a second, but this idea of community, this reality of community is this stabilizing force that God has given to us, he's given to man, but he's also given it to creation. In biology, a community is an interacting group of various species in a common location. It takes being present, but there's also, it takes permanence. Uh, I've used this analogy before, but the roots on a redwood tree. I like planet Earth. I like planet Earth too. I like nature documentaries. The redwood tree, a lot of these trees have been around since Jesus walked the earth. Like thousands of years. It's, it's mind-blowing how long they've been around. You're going to realize the storms they've been through, and yet they're still standing. They're as tall as a football field. So you would think, man, those roots probably look like that. They probably go deep. They're probably expansive in their depth, but most of their roots don't go any further than a basketball hoop, 10 feet. But what happens is their roots spread out horizontally for acres and begin to fuse with the trees around them to the point where they literally hold themselves down hold each other down. And it speaks to me spiritually because in this life, I'm not called to put roots deep down into this earth. We're sojourners. We're passing through. This is not home to be with God in eternity is. But in our lives, the time God gives us here to steward, we're called to reach out. We're called to not be independent, but to be interdependent, both in the church and then reach out beyond the four walls of the church while we're here as we steward our lives. And you know, technology can be a great blessing when it comes to the process of discipleship, but it's authentic relationship that provokes the process so often. You know, podcasts, live streaming, uh, all the things we have available, video series, online groups, it's all beneficial to the process of discipleship. But we can stunt our growth when we replace community with a digital connection. There's a, a, a key difference here because our online networks, they belong to us. But our community, especially the community of believers, you belong to that. What's the difference? Well, you choose your social network. Right? I choose who I'm friends. You know, sometimes I'll even stay friends, but what is it where you can uh, unfollow? Yeah, that's a secret. But you're in control of the people that you're relating to in these networks. You choose to hang and, and, and uh, be with voices that often echo your own. So selfies and trophy photos and the things you post, it's often our self-interpretation. And rarely are we challenged or held accountable for their accuracy. And maybe you're like, well, I've been held accountable by, by people in this church for my post. Well, that's because the church is a community that you don't choose. Sure, you get to choose what church you attend, but within a healthy church, there's diversity. Within a healthy church, there's a diversity in age, there's a diversity in background, there's a diversity, 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 I don't even remember what was, there's diversity, right, education, income, there's just a, a diversity in perspective, life experience, and, and a healthy church is one of the few places anymore that gives us community. Like, here's your community, you're welcome, right? Here's the family of faith, just like you didn't get to choose your brothers and sisters that your mom and dad had, here's your family of faith. God bless. Have fun. Unified, diverse community. But it's great because that's the kind of community 
that provokes. That's the kind of community that causes friction and ultimately causes transformation and growth. Doesn't happen in an instant. Happens over time. Happens as you put down roots over years, over lifelong investment. But you know in life, you got kids, you realize the first step in growth is from dependence to independence. But at some point, you grow from independence to interdependence. Healthy maturity, especially in our faith, comes from interdependence. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, a section in my Bible that says unity and maturity in the body of Christ. It tells us in this passage, Ephesians 1, I believe it, or excuse me, 4, I believe it's verse 2, where he says, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Maturity takes unity, bearing with one another. You know, patience, it's not in an instant, it's over time. And this is this idea of interdependence. Stephen Covey wrote this book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he said, life is by nature highly interdependent. To try to achieve maximum effectiveness through independence is like trying to play tennis with a golf club. An independent, private relationship with God that's not shared is ultimately a stunted relationship with God. You know, you might get to a certain distance in your faith, depth in your faith, but our, our, our faith is meant to be personal, but, but never private. And again, the church is an interdependent group of believers whose need for each other is often greater than we realize. So lock in, get rooted, fuse your roots with those around you, and in life you can begin to hold each other down. And if you're one of those people here tonight where you're like, yeah, I've got 400 Facebook friends, maybe you got 4,000 Facebook friends, whatever, but you're like, in life, I, I'm one of that 25% that has like zero people in my life who I would say I'm close friends with, who I, I share everything with, who I'm, I'm real with, who can read me like a book, who when I try to throw up a filter, they're like, that ain't real, that's not you, I know what's going on. If that's you, or you would say, I, I need more of those people in my life than just practical advice, moving forward, find more ways to be present. Don't miss service, that's practical. Find a way to get to life groups, find a way to get things to things like National Night Out where you're serving alongside people, where you're doing life alongside people, and maybe your schedule's crazy, find some windows in your schedule, throw them out to somebody and try to meet them for coffee. Meet somebody for coffee tomorrow morning. It's going to be awesome because I'm going to be present. We're going to connect. But secondly, find ways to get rooted. One of the problems with social networks and having 1,000, 2,000 friends is that you trade quality for quantity. But, you know, a good baseline as you seek to be present you seek to get rooted. You seek to have authentic relationship in, in, in a culture that's consumed with, with selfies. There's, there's a great quote by Beth Moore where she says, be authentic with all, be transparent with most, be intimate with some. You know, this call to authenticity isn't so tonight you'll, you'll log on to Facebook and just begin to share everything, right? Just bleed all over the Internet. It's not a call to pour details of your life out here, there, and everywhere. You can be real, authentic, and honest with the world and still have private, personal things that stay private and personal. But your faith also can't be locked up behind this door of it's, it's just me, it's private. You need people in your life where you open the door and, and you are transparent. You are 
intimate. You are raw. Where when you're going through something, they know about it. Where when you're going through something, you're asking for help. When you're going through something, they're calling you out on it. And again, where when you try to throw up the, the filter of everything's all good, they can read right through it. When you come into church, you give the church answer like, hey, man, I'm blessed. And then they're like, come on. I can see it on your face. I can read you like a book. Something's up. You know, when you embrace authenticity and, and you long to be authentic, you ditch the need to be perfect and you pick up the need to be honest. Again, God wants us to be honest with him. God wants us to have people in our lives that, that are walking the same life we are, pursuing the same pursuits we are, following Jesus Christ like we are, who we're honest with, who, who people can read you like a book. Nate said, you know, we met a couple days ago for lunch. We try to do that regularly just to keep up with each other. What's going on? What's bothering you? What's going well? You need those people in your life. And it's funny, I think Nate and I have been going to church together for 12 years. 12 years ago, we didn't know each other. But you do that enough, you show up, you be present, you find ways to get rooted. And you can find ways to really, truly be authentic with people in, in a culture where so much is filtered. But, you know, if I could have the worship team come up. Just to close, we're going to sing uh, It Is Well Again as we prepare to leave tonight. But in John chapter 12, verses 42 through 43, I'm not going to read it, but it's John 12, verses 42 through 43. Religious leaders who, if we were in the modern times, probably would have been face, Facebook stalking Jesus, probably would have been uh, checking up on everything he was doing. They, they, they were interested in Jesus. They, they even had like a, a shred of belief in Jesus, but they didn't publicly step out. They didn't publicly profess it. They didn't publicly follow him because they didn't want to get rejected by the other religious leaders. Who knows what happened to them? And the reality is the Cliff Notes version of that passage is if, if you follow Christ, then some people in the world will probably unfollow you. You know, if we live for likes, if we live for affirmation, if we live for approval, then this whole living for Jesus thing might not always turn out as anticipated. Because, again, if you follow Christ, truly deny yourselves, take up your cross, follow him, there are going to be times where the world doesn't follow you. You know, the other side of that coin, the Bible says if we follow the world, Christ unfollows us. No, actually doesn't say that. It says even when we're unfaithful, he's faithful. God doesn't stop pursuing us. God's grace doesn't stop following us, available if we just turn to him. Like the, the prodigal son, his father was waiting on the porch to see him come over that hill. I don't know, again, as we talked about in worship, what you've been dealing with, what you've been walking through, but whatever it is, if you haven't been living authentically, so there's just things that you're wrestling with. You haven't been able to share them with anybody. There's been things, habits, maybe just ways of thinking, maybe things you're struggling with that, that are just coming against you. Then tonight there's grace for that. God is here tonight. His spirit is here tonight. He wants to encounter us, and he doesn't need us to be perfect. He doesn't need us to come filtered and have it all together. He just needs us to be honest. Some of those things that we come in here with, we don't have to leave with. Some of them we're going to take with us, and God's going to go with us. He's going to be present when we find ourselves at the waters, at the fire. He's going to be present with us. But there's some things tonight where we can lay that down and leave changed. Again, I don't know what those things are, but as we go into worship, when Dean and Sue and Watney are back there, they would love to pray for you. I would love to pray for you. Or maybe you just need to, in faith, sing these words to the song, It Is Well. 
and truly believe it in your heart because of what Jesus Christ did. It's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way. God's grace comes to meet us where we're at, and then God's grace challenges us to be transformed. That takes getting honest with God, authentic with God, and then it takes being honest and authentic with people. But come on, can we just, in all honesty, joy, and praise, worship God one last time? Can we stand as we sing this song? It is well. Again, if you need prayer, I'm here. The Nawatnis are there. But let's worship.